It's Friday, March 4th. I'm Sarah Y. Kim. On this date two years ago, Maryland hospitals admitted their first COVID 19 patients. Baltimore City Council President Nick Mosby is not giving up on his battered dollar house bill. Maryland's large Ukrainian community is speaking out against the assault by Russia on their native homeland. In Annapolis, legislation to legalize recreational marijuana use moves to the Senate after being approved in the House, where state delegates are tackling climate change with four separate bills. March is National Kidney Month. We'll hear how one local medical system is leading the way with ending the practice of using race as a factor in determining kidney health. It's The Daily Dose from WYPR, our latest reporting on Maryland's COVID-19 response and the local news of the day, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Maryland's COVID-19 positivity rate is at 1.85%. That's the state's lowest positivity rate since last July. Hospitalizations yesterday were the lowest they've been since August, but have increased slightly today by four, as 349 people are now hospitalized due to COVID. And just over 90% of the population, aged five and older, has received at least one dose of the COVID vaccine. Today marks two years since Maryland hospitals treated their first COVID-19 patients in 2020. Bob Atlas, president and CEO of the Maryland Hospital Association, says more than 71,000 Marylanders have been hospitalized since the start of the pandemic and that hospital workers are true heroes. Council President Nick Mosby's proposal to revive Baltimore's famed Dollar House program failed to pass out of committee last night. WYPR's Emily Sullivan reports. The split vote with seven yeses, seven noes, and one absence means Mosby's hallmark legislation can't move out of committee, where it has languished since he first introduced it in November. He was undeterred and frames it as just another step in the legislative process. So what we're going to have to do, we'll come back. Uh, We'll continue to work through uh, any amendments or any problems or, or questions or concerns that council members may have. Senior aides to Mayor Brandon Scott have lobbied the council's progressive wing against the legislation for months. They voted no, as did several moderate council members. Mosby can attempt another vote on this bill, but without support from the moderates, he faces an uphill battle. Emily Sullivan, WYPR News. Marylanders have shattered a previous record for the Maryland Health Connection open enrollment. Governor Larry Hogan announced yesterday that 182,861 residents enrolled for 2022 health coverage. That surpasses the previous record of 166,038 set the year prior. Maryland was one of four state marketplaces to extend open enrollment deadlines. Gas prices are continuing to skyrocket in Baltimore and elsewhere across the nation. AAA reports the city's gas average is $3.88 a gallon. That's slightly above the national average of $3.83. Drivers have seen a 50-cent increase over the last month. As the war in Ukraine continues, Maryland activists say the turmoil is personal for our region's Ukrainian-Americans. Emily Sullivan has more. Krish Vignaraja is the president and CEO of Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service. She appeared on WYPR's Midday with Tom Hall this afternoon. Here in Baltimore, we have a very large Ukrainian population. Daily, I get messages of family members who are, uh, you know, worried sick um, about, about their family members. 
More than a million Ukrainian refugees have fled their country since Russia first instigated war. Vignaraja says federal officials should streamline Ukrainian migration to the U.S. and that local residents should amplify the voices of their Ukrainian-American neighbors. I know the pain of what they're going through as they're trying to communicate through social media. Um, So if you do have a friend or a neighbor, please highlight what they're sharing. Emily Sullivan, WYPR News. Rosalind Tong has officially been sworn in to the Court of Special Appeals in the 7th District, serving Montgomery County. The historic move made her the first Asian American appointed to the court. Tong also became the youngest woman to ever be appointed as well. Now that the House of Delegates has approved legalizing marijuana in Maryland, the focus shifts to the Senate, where a committee took up a more expansive bill this week. WYPR's Joel McCord reports. The House voted to send a state constitutional amendment to voters asking whether they approve of legalizing recreational marijuana. They also passed a bill that laid out requirements for studies and penalties for public use. The Senate bill is a constitutional amendment as well. It contains criminal justice provisions similar to those the House passed and goes on to lay out how the drug would be distributed, marketed, and taxed. Senator Brian Feldman, the Montgomery County Democrat sponsoring the bill, says the House version doesn't go far enough. We, on our side, kind of were of a view that if you're going to ask the voters to vote, uh, maybe they need to know what they're voting on exactly. Feldman says there already is a lot of money in the illicit marijuana market that the state could put to good use if it had the ability to tax and regulate it. My bill's basically, you know, I think trying to say that if we're going to pass a referendum, let's sort of get the market going as opposed to delaying for a year or two years getting to those issues, which are in all candor, a little more complicated than the criminal justice issues. Feldman says Maryland should move quickly because the regional landscape on marijuana is shifting. We've got Virginia, New York, New Jersey, Delaware just last week, their House of Representatives passed a legalization bill, Connecticut. Um, you know, So all these states are moving in the region on actual sale of the product, taxing the product, regulating the product, and then taking all that revenue and directing it back into impacted communities. House Republicans tried unsuccessfully to add amendments that would allow local governments and counties that vote against legalization to keep marijuana illegal in their jurisdictions, to toughen penalties for public use, and add packaging requirements. In the Senate, Steve Hershey, a Republican from the Upper Shore, says some of those issues could also arise in his chamber. There will be questions, for example, about public use. Where can it be utilized? Where can, you know, are you able to just stand outside of a, an outdoor restaurant and, and smoke marijuana, even if, you know, all the customers inside would be able to, to, you know, you know, smell it. He worried also that regardless of how many other states have legalized recreational marijuana, it remains illegal under federal law. Um, you know, it's one of the, the big concerns that we have through Uh, A number of things, especially as you look at the state of Maryland, you know, just down the street, we've got the Naval Academy, we have lots of federal facilities. And the question has always been, you know, if Maryland legalizes it, is it is it legal on, on federal property? Though he says he believes the effort will pass in the Senate, he says he has great concerns about legalization. Just from the perspective that 
We've heard many, many times before that it is a gateway drug, um, that it is something that do we want um, you know, our, our youngsters to, un, to, to feel that, hey, this is legal now, therefore they can go and experiment with it. Even if the Senate approves Feldman's bill, it will have to be reconciled with the House version before it can go to the voters. Feldman says he thinks that can be done relatively quickly. So we could just do a referendum. We could do referendum with criminal justice underlying bill, which I think is very doable. Um, the market issues are more complicated. Delegate Luke Clippinger, sponsor of the House bills, says he and Feldman have had initial conversations about the legislation. He's got his hearings coming up, and we're going to double back and talk again after that, and we'll start to figure out what our next steps are going to be. If lawmakers approve the constitutional amendment, the question goes directly to the voters without a stop at Governor Larry Hogan's desk. Klippinger and Feldman say they are confident that voters will approve legalization in November. It's just a question of finalizing the details. Continuing with our legislative roundup from Annapolis... While Maryland senators wrestle with a huge, all-encompassing bill to reduce the state's carbon footprint to zero, members of the House of Delegates are taking up those climate change-related issues in four separate bills. Joel McCord has this update. One of those bills requiring the state to gradually convert to an all-electric vehicle fleet already has passed the House. Two others calling for new construction and for new state-funded buildings to be all-electric have had hearings recently, and the one that requires Maryland to be carbon neutral by 2045 is scheduled for a committee hearing this afternoon. Delegate Dana Stein, the Montgomery County Democrat co-sponsoring the bills, says it made sense to break them up. We, we decided in the House that we wanted to split up our bills so that each bill went to just one committee as opposed to being jointly assigned to more than one committee. He called it a more straightforward process. Environmental advocates who laid out an ambitious agenda that centered on climate change nearly a month before this year's General Assembly session began have staged rallies supporting the bills on Lawyers Mall and have lined up to testify in their favor. At a hearing this week, Kim Coble, executive director of the Maryland League of Conservation Voters, told the House Appropriations Committee the bill requiring new state buildings to be all electric should be called the Maryland State Climate Leadership Act. It's saying that this is an important goal for our state and we're going to be leaders in it. With the, as Maryland is the, one of the most educated and well-funded, wealthiest states in the country, we should be a national leader. Chris Parts of the U.S. Green Building Council praised lawmakers for setting high-performance building standards in 2008, but complained little has been done since then. He told the committee Maryland should act now to take advantage of the cheaper operational costs of all electric buildings. Acting within the parameters of this bill will not only document our building emissions, but it will also track our progress towards zero carbon emissions as a part of the legislative objective. Others, however, worried that the bills go too far too fast in committing the state to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Ellen Valentino of the Mid-Atlantic Petroleum Distributors told the Appropriations Committee the bill to make new state buildings all electric raises safety issues. 
What happens when the lights do go out? And I think that's a valid question that people need to deliberate on. And when the lights do go out, there needs to be backup fuel, and that includes heat oil and propane as well, and natural gas. Jeff Guido of the Baltimore Building Trades Council complained that the electric buildings bill has no provisions to ensure that workers who transition from jobs in fossil fuel businesses to work in wind and solar can maintain their standards of living. We want the standards to be, you know, prevailing wages with benefits. Contractors that have not had any violations of the federal or state uh, wage laws for three years, and an establishment of a plan to for outreach and recruitment of Maryland's residents in the poor, underserved areas of the state. Others have said they support reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but they have problems with the bills under consideration. Lobbyists for BGE complain in written testimony that the House bill to make Maryland carbon neutral by 2045 requires utilities to completely overhaul their existing regulatory models to focus on the building sector, which they say accounts for only 13 percent of economy-wide emissions. Assuming the House bills pass, they still must be reconciled with the Senate bill. Delegate Stein, the co-sponsor of the House bills, says they've been working on that. The goal is for the substance to be aligned, for this House and the Senate to be aligned in the substance so that our bills would have uh, very similar content to what's in the Senate bill. He says they're in the middle of discussions with senators to resolve the differences. I'm Joel McCord, WYPR News. When calculating a patient's kidney health, many hospitals factor in the patient's race, specifically whether or not they are black. Doctors at the University of Maryland Medical System recently stopped this practice, saying it has no scientific basis. When doctors want to know how well your kidneys are doing, they measure something called your GFR, or glomerular filtration rate. To do that, doctors measure waste products in your bloodstream, among other factors. Dr. Stephen Seliger, a nephrologist at the University of Maryland Medical Center, says the amount of waste product in your blood tends to reflect how much muscle you have. So in calculating your GFR, doctors also take your age and sex into account. On average, younger people have more muscle for the same body weight. On average, men have more muscle for the same age and body weight than women. But in addition to age and sex, doctors also used race. That is, whether you are African-American or not, to calculate your GFR. It was long assumed that people whose ancestry derived from Africa also had more muscle than people whose ancestry derived, say, from Europe. More hospitals are adopting the race-free algorithm, though the practice is still not universal. Dr. Joseph Wright is chief health equity officer at the University of Maryland Medical System, also known as UMMS. Wright says race is a social construct, and he can't rely on social constructs to accurately calculate a biological function. How someone looks does not really ascribe to a biologic proxy of what's going on in the person's body. Seliger says the race-based algorithm tended to overestimate how well black patients' kidneys were working. It might lead to delayed recognition in them having advanced or more end-stage kidney disease the kind of uh, severity of kidney disease that, for example, would uh, otherwise trigger consideration of kidney transplantation. 
He says changing the race-based algorithm did not happen overnight. Shortly before UMMS announced the change, a task force formed by the National Kidney Foundation and the American Society of Nephrology recommended that doctors stop including race when estimating kidney function. Seliger says along with this national push was a cultural shift at UMMS. You have new generation of physicians, physicians in training, who are increasingly part of a clearly multi-ethnic society. He says that helped UMMS change its practices more quickly than many other health systems. Wright says this algorithm is just a first step for him and his colleagues in re-examining the role of race in medicine. We are a generation of physicians and, and, and health professionals who have grown up with these assumptions baked into our training and education. It's these assumptions that affect black patients like Uchenna and UBC from Prince George's County. She got on the kidney transplant wait list while at the University of Maryland Medical Center when the race-based algorithm was still in use. I was lucky to have a really great nephrologist, but not everybody is able to have that, you know, not everybody is able to have the access to health care that I was able to get. She says if she had a different nephrologist who only considered her GFR, things could have been very different. If I didn't get the good care in time, I could have ended up being really sick, sent to the hospital, and then put on hemodialysis, which would completely change my day-to-day life. And UBC says she is a physical therapist and has doctors in her family. These factors, she says, made her a better patient advocate. Being the best patient advocate that you can for yourself is super important. And I don't know if a lot of patients know that. And NUBC says bridging health inequities means having more doctors who look like her and who can listen to patients of all backgrounds. cover the news of the day here on The Daily Dose, but it's also a platform for listeners like you. Got a thought or a story you want to share about life in the era of coronavirus? Leave us a voicemail to play on an upcoming episode. The number 410-235-6060. We've also got a button on the WIPR app, so you can record a voice memo that way too. Just tap Daily Dose comments on the app or give us a call. The number again, 410-235-6060. 6060. We're always happy to hear from you, and we'll be here for you again on Monday. The Daily Dose is brought to you by WYPR, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Big thanks to my news team colleagues, Rachel Bay, John Lee, Joel McCord, Emily Sullivan, and Callan Hansel Suddeth. Our digital content director is Jamila Krempel, and our general manager is LaFontaine Oliver. The executive editor of The Daily Dose is Danielle Irby. Stay healthy, stay sane, and stand together. I'm Sarah Y. Kim. Thanks for listening.